Hi, I'm Eddie Alterman. I'm an automotive journalist from Detroit and the former editor-in-chief of Car and Driver. But let's be honest, I'm really just a car freak. Listen to that engine. On my new podcast, Car Show, I'll be telling the stories of how the cars we drive reflect who we are. In New York, it's, it's what you wear, right? It's <laughs> your clothing, it's your fashion. In the middle of the country, it's your car. Listen to Car Show wherever you get your podcasts. The word troll lulls us into a fantasy, right? It makes us think that it is this problem enacted by those people over there. What I kept finding was that actually they were us, and it was also the structure of social media that enabled for all this hate to be sent to me. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, actor and media activist Dylan Marin talk about hate on the internet. We're in a dehumanization crisis right now. The main public square where we communicate with each other is devoid of ways to see each other as human beings. Who doesn't love to live well? to be perfectly at ease, in comfort, and style. Hunter Douglas can help you do just that with their innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics, and control systems so advanced they can be scheduled to automatically adjust to their optimal position throughout the day. There are so many wonderful things about them. Perhaps it's the way the shades diffuse harsh sunlight to cast a beautiful glow across the room, or being able to enjoy the view outside the window while protecting your privacy inside. When you tap into Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology, your shades can be set to automatically reposition for the perfect balance of light, privacy, and insulation, morning, noon, and night. That's what I love the most about them. So live beautifully with Hunter Douglas, enjoying greater convenience, enhanced style, and increased comfort in your home throughout the day. And right now, for a limited time, you can take advantage of generous rebate savings opportunities on select styles. Visit hunterdouglas.com slash designmatters for details. That's hunterdouglas.com slash designmatters. There's a lot of hate out there on the internet, and Dylan Marin has gotten his share of it. Not so much for playing Carlos on the Welcome to Night Vale podcast, which is how some of you podcast listeners may know him. He's gotten a lot of hate for being a gay person of color who has drawn attention to how Hollywood marginalizes people like him. For the comedy site Seriously TV, he created every single word a video series where the often meager lines spoken by people of color in popular movies were spliced together. He also created the video series Shutting Down Bullshit and Sitting in Bathrooms with Trans People. Funny, but not to some people. Ultimately, Dylan did something creative with all the hatred sent his way. He made a podcast called Conversations with People Who Hate Me, in which he got in touch with some of the people who had written nasty comments about him. Then he turned that podcast into a book of the same name with the subtitle, 12 Things I Learned from Talking to Internet Strangers. We're going to talk all about that today. 
Dylan Marin. Welcome to Design Matters. Debbie, thank you so much for having me. My absolute, absolute pleasure. I need to know, is it true that one of the things that most inspires you is Britney Spears' performance at the 2000 VMAs? <laughs> um, I can say that it lit a flame in me when I first <laughs> saw that performance. I was in seventh grade. I was just starting a new school. TiVo wasn't a thing yet. And I taped that performance. It's Britney Spears performing a medley of her cover of Satisfaction and Oops, I Did It Again. Um, you probably know it as the performance when she strips down from a suit into a skin-colored two-piece. Yeah, there was something about that performance that I... Um, you know, I, I so lacked any confidence at that age, as many of us do, and I put all of my stock into Britney Spears, and she became a projection screen onto which I became a confident person in the hours from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. when I would rush home and learn that choreography for the first two months of seventh grade. Well, speaking of learning the choreography, <laughs> I wasn't entirely sure which VMA's performance you were referring to, so I had to Google it. I wasn't sure if it was the performance with the big boa constrictor or snake or whatever it was that she was holding, or if it was the the performance where she sort of teetered on her heels um, and then, of course, discovered that it was indeed the performance of her greatest hits and mm. her transforming from this suit-clad mm. icon into this vixen. Uh. And... <laughs> I found on YouTube for those of uh, for those listeners that might want to see this because it's extraordinary, a video that compares her rehearsal performance to her actual performance and the accuracy that she lands that performance. If you look at them side by side, they're synchronous. Mm. It's just amazing. You really see just how great a dancer she is. Yeah, that's one of these treats that uh, YouTube allows us to pull out of the Britney vault. So many of us watched those things on like the fan VHSs that were made at the time, but now they're on YouTube and you all get to see what we all saw back in uh, the sweet late 90s, early aughts. Dylan, you were born in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Your mom is white. Mm -hmm. Your dad is Venezuelan. Mm -hmm. And you moved to New York when you were five years old. Do you have any vivid memories of that move? I remember, of course, like being a little nervous to come to New York, but I had a pretty international upbringing down in Venezuela. We were living in a, a complex of apartment buildings that was like very international. There were a lot of expat Americans. But the truth is, I, I don't have much of a memory of Venezuela. I haven't been back since I was five, largely due to um, the political climate down there. You know, I think when you're a kid, you want to gravitate towards wherever and however you can belong. And so to start a new school in the States at five, you're like, okay, my forming brain is just going to do whatever these other kids are doing. You know, Venezuela is obviously like a, a core part of me, but it's this almost unexplored part of my identity. Um because I haven't been there in so long. You talked about how, as biracial, you often felt like you didn't belong anywhere. Yeah. Um, you didn't feel you were Latino enough to be Latino, not white enough to be white. 
you've also said that you never knew what crayons to use when you drew a self-portrait, mm. and you never knew which box to check on standardized tests. Mm. How did you manage then, and how have you come to understand that sense of duality now? The truth is, it was and it continues to be a challenging identity question. You know, race is a different thing in South America. Uh, race is regarded differently. So while I very clearly am brown up here in the United States, that's not so defined down there. And that's not so defined when I'm around Venezuelan people. When people in the entertainment industry often talk about like, wanting to hear about people's heritage, you know, like they have super clear boxes of what they mean by that. Like they want to hear about your South American upbringing in the way that they understand your South American upbringing should play out in their head. You're getting such a messy answer because it's such a messy thing in my mind. Um, it's yeah. like, it's been so easy to just call myself Brown and kind of like, move along, right? Um, you don't get too many questions from that. But then to grapple with like, oh, like, what do I do with the fact that I'm a Venezuelan who doesn't speak Spanish? And when I'm correctly coded by someone as someone <laughs> of, you know, Latin heritage, that um, there's the expectation that I'll speak Spanish back to them, and then I don't. And then there's always like this looming feeling of feeling like a bad Venezuelan. And yeah, I think I think it's something... I will always battle, always battle feeling in the middle. And I think not belonging is something that just feels so, this is going to sound so sad, but like fundamental to who I am. But I think that that has like encouraged me to seek out belonging in whatever way I can. You're an only child, and you learned how to entertain yourself and create worlds and stories of games kind of on your own. Mm -hmm. um, what kinds of things were you making and playing and creating? I, God, I had this really long arts and crafts table. I would always drag that into the living room and turn that into a stage. And so one example is I would, like, craft a set around that table and after I saw Grease, I was like, nothing is better than the movie Grease. And so now I'm realizing it was a really um, genderqueer performance of Grease where I put on a leather jacket and the pink lady side, side handkerchief. Again, at the time, not a political statement. It was simply like, okay, I'm going to take that element from there, that element from here, put it together. So reenacting the movie musical Grease for sometimes just a babysitter uh, or uh, sometimes <laughs> just myself. Um, lots of forts, heavy on the forts. And then one day, I remember I woke up, wrote a play for me and my parents to perform, and they performed it <laughs> with me. It was, it, was, it was kind of like, I wish I had that confidence now as an artist to be like, Wake up, I'm going to try a totally new medium. I don't care if it fails, and I'm going to perform it with the people I love. I'm going to do it with the people I love. I'm going to make a marble sculpture. And so, yeah, I think like, <laughs> I think in the silence that comes with being an only child, you're, you are encouraged to find a way to, to fill it. I also spent a lot of my childhood making up plays and forcing my <laughs> siblings to take different parts and yeah. remember being quite aggressive in enforcing 
um, my brother in costume wearing of, of a whole series of my grandmother's scarves, which I remember he really wasn't that happy about. He, wa- he wasn't into it. But you were. Not, not nearly as much as I was. Yeah, no, but listen, it was your vision and it had to be absolutely, honored. Absolutely. That's how it goes. When did you decide you wanted to do something professional with performing? I think, you know, when we're in middle school and high school, and you know that you have that, like, creative spirit in you. You have that thing, that thing that is telling you, I have to do this. I have, I, I am called to this work. I'm drawn to it. I can't do anything else, really. I was like, well, I can't sing. I can't draw. I really have no musical talent. And so I think the thing I just kept following was acting because it was the way to express myself. I think also at the time I lacked any confidence and it was this space where I felt like I could be the like most bold version of myself and I was good at it. And I think um, I was good at it because I loved it and I was good at it because I cared about it. And so it was really like that one thing that I could do at that time and feel like I had um, a sense of control and a sense of ownership of something. While you were in high school, you actually met with agents that kept telling you that they weren't sure how many parts there were for you as a biracial man and that you'd never play a romantic male lead. Yeah. How did you make sense of that determination and how did it impact what you thought was possible for yourself? Well, at the time, it it didn't really makes sense, right? It, it just didn't make sense to me of like why I was being invited into these meetings and having the talent to be invited into these meetings and then being told that they weren't really that interested in representing me because there's probably not going to be much work out there for me. And they told me this in very clinical ways, right? It was just kind of matter of fact, unemotional. Well, this is just something I'm telling you. You're not going to get a lot of work. I don't think there's a lot of work out there for you. Obviously, I have so many more tools now to unpack that and understand the larger systemic implications of what it means to tell someone that because of who you are, there are no parts out there for you in this canvas through which humans understand each other and ourselves. And to tell someone that they can never play the romantic lead is to say, we can't believe you in a romantic experience. We, we don't see that for you. We can't envision that. And so I didn't have the ability to articulate that. I didn't even have the ar- ability to articulate that internally. So I just accepted what they were saying because I was a teenager and they were adults. And that changed later on. Despite the discouragement, you earned a bachelor's degree in theater and sociology at Wesleyan. And while you were there, you also worked at several talent management and casting companies Mm -hmm. and assisted the casting director of the 2008 HBO film Taking Chance. (laughs) Were were you considering casting as a career? Um, I was in the sense that I know that I loved this medium so much that I just wanted to be close to it in any way possible. I also think 
the casting rooms were what I was not allowed into <laughs> because the agents were um, telling me I wouldn't get the roles. And so I wanted to see what was happening there. What is happening in this room that you're telling me I can't go into? And the truth was that um, those came pretty organically. People who I had met through the auditions that I did get, which were always direct, and through friends, um, I was offered those internships. And I think it was like it demystified the room to me. Did you find the racial restrictions that you were warned about earlier accurate for the other actors that you were working with and trying to find uh, parts for? Yes and no. So legally and factually, I will tell you that they did see a diverse array of people, which is to say many colors, many races, sexualities too. But what I really learned was that the spectrum of diversity allowed within marginalized groups is very slim, mm. whereas the spectrum of diversity among white actors was vast, and it was showing the nuances, the complexities, the character descriptions for these characters were long, and it got into their backstories and who they were and who they are and who they're becoming. And so while they did see many Latin men, for example, there was a very thin understanding of what a Latin man looked like. And if there was a gay character, you could almost be certain that he was going to be white and he was going to be a man, right? Like it was like this was still coming off of the era of willing grace when mm. it was like you take what you can get, you take whatever representative you get at this mythic table that we are all angling for a seat at. So I, what I what I learned was like, oh, maybe I'm not the right kind of brown man. Maybe I'm not the right kind of gay man. And that feels dispiriting, to put it mildly. Yeah. While you were a freshman at Wesleyan, you joined a comedy group. Mm -hmm. And it was there that you stated you first learned how to write creatively for a community. And through that group, you met Joe Firestone and wrote a play together called Ridgefield Middle School Talent Night. <laughs> Feels like at that moment in your life, Dylan, all of your interests converged into yeah. this one sort of... Yeah. Pinpoint in time. And you took your first semester of senior year off and went on a college tour of the play. How confident did you feel in in the sort of potential of this play to go ahead and actually take time off from your senior year in school yeah. to do this? You know, we wrote this play that the campus really loved, but I needed to push myself to see okay, is anyone else going to respond? Like, yes, I feel like a superstar in this little contained, cushy college campus, but I want to do this for a living. I think I was feeling so terrified that I didn't understand anything about the world in a practical sense, right? Like, I knew how to sit around a beautiful wooden table and communicate ideas about the beautiful, complex, dense sociology text that I had just read. But I needed to know how to like get out there. Like how do I how do I do this thing? How do I prove those agents wrong, right? From high school who were telling me that I was never gonna play the romantic male lead. 
not that I was in Ridgefield, but uh, in Ridgefield Middle School Talent Night, I got to play, you know, half of 17 roles. <laughs> and um, and so it, it proved them wrong in that sense. But, I, you know, I, it was a play that we were so proud of. It was well-received. And what we were pleased to find was that, like, everywhere we did it, 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 it continued to get that kind of reception. And so pushing myself to take the time off so that I could be with Joe, who had just graduated, it was the push I needed and the push I gave myself to be like, okay, you really want to do this? Then you need to step outside of the most comfortable place you've ever been to really see if you can you can do this. After you came back to school, you discovered the performance group, the neo-futurists, where you said you've learned that you don't have to be funny to entertain people. And, you know, I, I tell that to so many of my students who mm. take on the archetype of the jester in the classroom. Mm. And, and I often tell them, you don't need to be funny mm. to be able to stand out. Mm. Um, what, made, what gave you that, that sensibility at that moment, at that time? Well, I, I was certainly searching for it because... Ridgefield Middle School Talent Night is a 17-character middle school talent show, so we were faring very well in comedy venues. It was a very funny play with a laugh a minute, right? It, it was just, it was a comedy. It was a sketch. It was a long-form sketch show. What I was finding is, while I certainly felt at home in my soul in doing Ridgefield with Joe... I also knew that it wasn't viable that I could do Ridgefield Middle School Talent Night <laughs> forever for the rest of my life. Um, and I didn't totally find a home in comedy theaters. And so blissfully, it was actually Joe who who took me to my very first neo-futurist show. And we saw the weekly show, which at the time was called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind. It's now called The Infinite Wrench. But it was 30 short, their weekly show is 30 short plays in 60 minutes. It just, I felt at home. I felt like I was seeing what I wanted to do. I, you know, they describe their rules. We, later, describe our rules at the top of every show. And it's that, it, it's non-illusory theater. Everything you see happening on stage is happening. So if someone says, um, I'm going to drink for the rest of the performance. They're actually going to be drinking alcohol and not feigning it, right? It's to see, like, in acting, a lot of times you you talk about, like, raising the stakes. Well, this was a form of theater where you had, where you just raised the stakes and you had to exist within those raised stakes. It wasn't this thing that you concocted in your imagination. And it felt new. It felt daring. It felt terrifying and i loved every second of it one week one two weeks in a row i i did a play um where i and it was called the titles were super specific you knew exactly what you were getting but it's like in which an ensemble member hears from someone they haven't heard from in a while and i i called all of their loved ones and asked for the recommendation of someone who they just haven't heard from in a really 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 long time that kind of person who just like is so is part of you, you you've just lost touch and i would have them sit on a chair in the center of the stage nothing just a spotlight on them and then in the audience the voice recording would play from this person and week after week they would just sob as they heard this and i was like that's what i want to do like 
you know, I'm I'm thrilled to do all this work so you can get the most real reaction from this person who is hearing from someone in front of 90 people who are sitting there. So it turned me on to that, that form of art. While with the Neo-Futurists, you met Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner, who created the podcast, Welcome to Night Vale. And how did they approach you about playing the part of Carlos? And then given that you were always having to be yourself <laughs> with the Neo-Futurists, how did you go about creating the persona of mm. Carlos or finding the persona of Carlos? It was the early days of Tumblr, and so it felt like the actors were known to the audience of Welcome to Night Vale, so the audience knew that they were both watching the actors, but also the people they were following on Instagram and the people on Twitter. And so it kind of felt like this seamless blend of... It wasn't character work, right? It wasn't like, who is Carlos, and how is he walking into this scene? It's like... It's like kind of in the way that you watch a celebrity in a rom-com, you are watching an amazing performer, but you're also going because you want to see that performer do this role, right? You're like, I watch a Julia Roberts rom-com because I want to see Julia Roberts fall in love. And I want to see Julia Roberts fall in love in these like new circumstances that have been written for her. And so I feel like Welcome to Night Vale was the same experience. It was like, I felt like I got to do it as myself. In an effort to support yourself while you were performing, I know you worked as a server at Angelica Kitchen and Peel's Restaurant. You also worked at Whole Foods. At what point in your trajectory as a performer did you have to, were you able to stop doing that? I'll tell you what, it was a lucky break. Um, I uh, was called in to audition for a TD Bank commercial, and I booked the commercial, and the commercial was picked up to air, and the residuals allowed me to leave a restaurant job and write a play. That is the crushing and sometimes beautiful thing about art making is that it's so random. And it's, it's simply because of that job that I was allowed to do it. You created every single word, a video series. Um, ultimately, uh, is something you continue to do when you got your job at Seriously TV. This was the video series, as I mentioned in my intro, where the often meager lines spoken by people of color in popular movies were put together in a YouTube supercut. You did, I mean, first of all, your tech skills are <laughs> out of this world. They're so beautifully made. Um, you also created the series Shutting Down Bullshit. You created the interview series Sitting in the Bathroom, Sitting in Bathrooms with Trans People in response to the transphobic bathroom bills being passed in the United States. And this is really when you started getting hate mail. Mm. Um, but I want to talk first about the motivation for starting Every Single Word. And what was the first movie that gave you that sort of hit of, I need to do this? The first movie that inspired it was the Julia Louis-Dreyfus romantic comedy Enough Said. I was watching it, loving it, and... It was only because there was a Latina maid that I realized that that was actually the only person of color 
in the entire movie, and she was a supporting character's maid. That was her role. So in, in 2014, I watched this movie on a plane, and I had a run with the neo-futurists right afterwards, and I figured, you know, I'm looking at the roster of performers, and I'm like, oh, that's funny. I'm, I'm going to be the only person of color in this run of shows. So I wrote a play for the neo-futurist stage called Every Single Word Spoken by a Person of Color in the Julia Louis-Dreyfus Romantic Comedy Enough Said as performed by the only performer of color in tonight's show. And so I recited all of the words myself, and the audience got a huge kick out of it. And then it was coming back from this long, epic, you know, countrywide Night Vale tour that I really was inspired to start Every Single Word, the video series, um, where I would, rather than performing the lines myself, I would edit down popular movies to only the words spoken by people of color so that in the public square, it just looked like a supercut series, right? That's the most effective way to get a message out there is to disguise it as <laughs> some other consumable form of of internet uh, art. And what happened when I was coming back from that tour is that I had been nominated for a Drama Desk Award for the play that I had written, the play that I had written when I was able to take time off from the TD Bank commercial. It's all coming together. I was like, you know what? I'm coming off of this successful tour. I was just nominated for a Drama Desk Award. It's time to meet with agents again. And this was self-propelled. Um, no one was necessarily contacting me, but I, I was pursuing it. I was like, it's time. I need an agent. And I found that I was hearing the same things over and over again. I was hearing the same things I heard in high school. Uh, we think you're really talented. We don't think it's likely that you're going to get work. The difference was that when I was in high school, I accepted this as fact because I was a teenager being told by adults this thing. And now I'm an adult who is like, wait a second, the problem is actually not me. <laughs> the problem is systemic. Because if I'm walking into an office and they're taking a meeting with me and they're telling me it's unlikely that I'm going to get work, then this is actually something much bigger than me. This is not my own trials and tribulations of finding representation. This is actually a, a much larger representation issue, capital R. And so that's what really pushed me to make the Every Single Word series, where rather than performing the lines myself, I edited it down as a supercut. It was this thing I made in my bedroom, you know, on my laptop, and it blew up and it got a ton of press and most importantly, it got people rethinking an invisible thing that they hadn't thought about before. And I was like, I could do that from my bedroom on the internet? You know, who needs an agent? I will <laughs> just make work. And so that, that, was, that was the inspiration. I want to share with our listeners some of the facts that I learned in my research <laughs> about some of these movies. So the entire... 558-minute Lord of the Rings trilogy was cut down. Your supercut for that trilogy <laughs> was 46 seconds yep. of dialogue <laughs> of people of color. Um, Maleficent, the live-action Disney spinoff of Sleeping Beauty with Angelina Jolie, featured an unnamed captain who spoke for 18 seconds. Mm -hmm. 
The popular movie musical Into the Woods featured no speaking roles for actors of color at all. Neither did the movie Noah with Russell Mm -hmm. Crowe. These movies that were supposedly telling universal stories were cast as white, as you say, by default. None of the movies were about race, per se, nor were these stories inherently white, Mm -hmm. yet they were told with all white actors. So a minute or two of dialogue from people of color in two-hour movies really telegraphs the inequity in a much more profound way than any diversity study might. Mm. Do you feel like things are changing, or do you feel like if you did this again with the most popular movies right now— it might be a little bit more encouraging. I think they are. I think people are aware of this, and I, I don't think every single word is solely responsible. Um, in fact, the year I created every single word, April Rain had started the hashtag Oscar So White. You know, Franklin Leonard has been doing amazing work in this space for, for a long time. But I do think that... Every single word as a project got to join the conversation. I do think it offered an accessible way to see it empirically right before your eyes. Do I think it's gotten better? I do. When you're in a TV production office and you see posters of old TV shows that they've worked on, when you're looking, even like in the 2010s, you'll see an all-white cast and you think to yourself, oh, this would never happen today. Like, you you just wouldn't see an all-white cast. That being said, a lot of our protagonists are still white, you know? Spider-Man is a great example, right? Like, you have Zendaya, and you have Peter Parker's best friend, you know? And it feels like, ooh, diversity. But there's still this, this thing of, like, well, Spider-Man will always be white. Yes, the side players are getting to be not white. Uh, They're getting to be not straight. In many thrilling cases, they're getting to be not cis, you know, like, it's it's all happening. But I think sometimes we're still dealing with the white protagonist problem. Dylan, all of your work up until this point in your trajectory, the Tumblr posts that you wrote to Night Vale fans about coming out of the closet, navigating your biracial identity on stage, the every single word speeches you gave about racial representation on screen, they all reflected your your mm-hmm. voice, your authentic voice, which you've described as deeply <laughs> earnest and sincere. <laughs> But you've also said that you've learned that this was this this deeply earnest sincerity was a cardinal sin on the wider internet. Why is that? That's a question I'm still exploring myself, to be honest. I think sincerity can come off as insincere online in this really vexing way. You know, like sometimes when you get on to say what you are actually feeling as you actually feel it, it feels like you're not speaking the language of the internet, right? Because I also think that the internet rewards the most hyperbolic thing. It rewards the most extreme thing you can say. So this is why I think we're now operating in this larger problem where everyone is either iconic, the goat, queen, king, or they are the absolute worst piece of trash person that you've ever seen on the entire internet. Because to express something in the middle of like, oh, I mostly like this person's work, but I found fault in this 
just as a boring phrase to share out there onto the world. And so I think the structure of the internet and you know what travels best online has shaped how we speak. And so I think like earnestness sometimes <laughs> doesn't have a place in that because earnestness is often about like expressing something as honestly and as emotionally as possible and and that doesn't play well. So I think I had to as I started making digital videos for for seriously.tv, I kind of took it upon myself to figure out how I could traffic in this world, how I would be able to succeed in this world. So would you say that apathy and snark and sarcasm are really the vernacular of the internet? I think so. I think largely because they're the most extreme way to say something. And that's typically the take that wins is not necessarily the most nuanced, but the one that cuts right in. And I also think that there are a lot of very legitimate reasons for this. I mean, we're living in, I mean, what a time to be alive, right? To witness it as all of the things are being reported constantly to us. So there is certainly cause for cynicism. You know, there is certainly cause for the apathy is understandable when there's just so much going on that all we can do is shut down. But I do think that is part and parcel to the language of the internet. You then had to make a decision about how you wanted to be portrayed on the internet. Mm -hmm. You had to figure out how to maintain your success mm -hmm. on a platform that would shun <laughs> you for, as you put it, daring to express your true self. Yeah. How did you go about navigating that? And how did you go about making a decision to begin to change your persona yeah. at that time? Well, so my early work at Seriously.TV felt in line with my voice. Sitting in bathrooms with trans people is, is a sweet, sincere interview series. What I wanted to really kind of dive into was the more directly politically charged work, right? Like, obviously, sitting in bathrooms with trans people is politically charged in that I'm saying, like, these laws are about human beings. Let us meet these human beings that these laws are about, right? And every single word is about the lack of representation on screen and what it means when we're not even exercising our empathy for people of color. But I think there was something that I saw being rewarded which was like the the sharper take, the sharper jab at someone. And so I, I found that opportunity when I came across this video of a young conservative woman who was, her video is called Dear Millennials, and she was talking about all the ways that her generation and mine, the millennials, were not living up to yesterday's standards. And, you know, she was espousing pretty standard conservative views. And I decided that it was time to make a biting response video. And so I wrote a video where I used all of her lines as setups to my punchlines, kind of bit back, and I adopted this snarkier voice, snarkier than is natural for me, to kind of bite back at her. I posted the video, and it, you know, it posted through seriously, and it blew up like it just blew up it was the first video of the network to get a million views and i was just enamored 
like I was just there's that scene in Aladdin where Apu like you just like you see the dollar signs in his eyes like his eyes become dollar <laughs> signs that Bugs Bunny does that too it's so it's good. so good but that was me with the likes with the with the view count and I was just like inject this right into my veins this is what I want I took the success of that video as a kind of set of rules that I would apply to future videos. You know, like, oh, this succeeded so much. Me stepping out of my comfort zone and being snarky and making jokes at the expense of someone else who I disagree with ideologically is good for me, (laughs) you know? And I think there was also a nobility to it, too, that I thought of at the time. I, I thought there was a nobility because in attacking someone who was espousing conservative points, I thought I was a warrior from my side. I thought I was like doing something big for my people. When you're getting that many coins from the internet praising you for this, it's really hard to see it differently. When did you begin to realize that you were actually helping to amplify this vitriol you know it was it was less that i felt that i was amplifying the vitriol but the troubling realization was more that i wasn't changing the world right that i was in Mm. fact only speaking snarkily speaking to the choir right like (laughs) by giving these biting talking points to the choir who was already there and i was speaking only to people who were already agreeing with me we were in an echo chamber and not this wider internet and you know This sounds so cliche now, but I really felt like it was the 2016 election that that was this big wake-up call for me that, like, oh, my God, like, here I was closely monitoring my political tweets as if they were bellwethers for the national election. And then I learned, like, oh, I don't know this country at all. And I feel like I'm still understanding what happened and you know throughout my whole time at seriously while i was getting more followers and more likes i was also getting more hate and that's just what happens when when you make something big online and so i started collecting all of those pieces of hate uh, be they comments or messages in a hate folder or what i called my hate folder all caps and i i think i kind of realized i was like oh you know most of this is coming from conservative people, I wonder if I actually don't understand this country and maybe this hate folder is a better representation of of this country than I thought. So it was then that I was like, I need to do something. Because the reason I got into this game in the first place, even more important than, you know, my eyes going gaga for the metrics rolling in, was I wanted to say something and I wanted to start conversations in the way that every single word allowed people to see a problem that they didn't know was a problem before. I wanted to continue that work. Same with sitting in bathrooms with trans people from from my earlier time at Seriously. I, you know, like those were really successful ways of getting messages across. And that's all I ever wanted to do was to get those messages across in ways that would actually reach people. And I was wondering if the snarky takedown, the epic takedowns were not the way. When did you realize that you wanted 
rather than take down the haters, that you actually wanted to dialogue with them and talk about the hate. Yeah. Well, I was um, at comedy shows when I was invited to do a comedy show. I would kind of scroll through a cross section of the hate from pieces in the hate folder and I would make jokes at their expense. And I posted one of those videos online and someone recognized himself in that video and he's chosen to go by the name Josh for all of our conversations. So Josh saw himself in the video and he messaged me and he seemed really hurt by the fact that I was making fun of his message. Which was making fun of you. Uh, Yeah, making fun of me. He reached out and he was like, listen, you brought up some valid points there. I'm wondering if you want to talk. And so he sent me his number. My mind was reeling in, in, in film, you know, when they do the zoom in shot while they're pulling away. <laughs> and that's yeah. exactly what that moment felt like. And I was so terrified. But at the same time, I had been trying to figure out this way to create conversations with my work. And I was like, Oh, that was the light bulb moment of like, oh, maybe these conversations are possible with the hate folder residents (laughs) that I already have here. And so I took him up on his offer and I called him the next day. And that phone call was this beautiful moment of connection where I felt like all of these lofty goals that I had had of communicating with people was in fact possible by simply calling someone. It was it was this very 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 simple solution to this very complex problem. And we found that we had a lot in common. He was a senior in high school at the time and he was being bullied and I was like I was bullied in high school too, right? And I think it's important to note like a lot of people are are heartwarmed by that common ground we found. And it's like, it is both true that we found that common ground and that common ground doesn't absolve the hurtful thing he said to me. But we can accept and move forward with both. And I think I started to internalize that on this call. And the success of that call with Josh showed me that maybe this kind of communication was possible with more people who were in my hate folder. So you decided to start a show, which became a podcast uh, titled Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Mm-hmm. This is also the title of your brand new book. Mm-hmm. Why the word hate? Mm. As I started recording the early episodes of Conversations with People Who Hate Me, it didn't feel fair. And so many of the people, and, and what I always say is like, on Conversations with People Who Hate Me, I'm only speaking to people who I feel safe talking to. That means I'm not talking to people who are, like, threatening to kill me, right? And so, so many of the people who I spoke to were expressing, like, oh, I don't hate you. Like, I'm shocked that you would think that. And some of them was like, well, you said a really cruel thing to me, so that's why I think you hate me. But then some of the people, in the light of day, you're like, I don't know that this extreme word is fair to what you've written me. And so I, ha- I had to kind of wrestle w- with how fair it was to label all of the negativity hate, as I think many of us do. You also very intentionally did not use or describe the people you were speaking to as mm. trolls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk, ab- talk about that decision. 
the word troll lulls us into a fantasy, right? It makes us think that it is this problem enacted by those people over there. They are the trolls. We are the good villagers. And they are this unsightly being that lives under a bridge that torments us. And I think what I kept finding in my conversations was that actually they weren't these human anomalies. They were us. And it was also the structure of social media that enabled for all this hate to be sent to me, which is not to negate how ferociously some of them and I disagree on things. But in this space where the sharpest, zingiest, sometimes most hurtful take is what cuts through, and a space where you mix that in, where everyone can feel so insignificant, where I can message you and be like, oh, Debbie's never going to see it. You know, I'll message anything I want. Those two things, right, the accessibility to someone and the constant feeling of insignificance merge to make the hate messages being sent a sadly normal thing. Yes. That's why I no longer felt comfortable using the word trolls. It was also a bad production technique. If you're telling people that to come on a show where you talk to trolls and you're inviting them on, no one's going to say yes. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so interesting no matter who you talk with in your conversations mm. and how much hate or unkindness they've hurled at you mm. online mm. in this sort of almost anonymous manner. Mm. Um you're always sympathetic to the people that you talked with and it seems to me that most people wanted to backtrack from that hate quite a bit mm -hmm. once they understood more about where you were coming from. I mean, I think mm. one of the most startling things for me in really understanding the backstories to a lot of the podcast episodes was even understanding that Josh... Mm was a high school student, yeah. you know, we sort of villainize yeah. and, and really demonize the, the people that hate us so mm. that they're all bad. Mm. But, and, and, you know, I was the victim of some bullying back in the early two thousands when it was a very foreign concept, mm. you know, at that point I really thought I had to like quit the internet, quit my job, quit everything because I was so humiliated by the vitriol until I actually participated in the conversation. And then suddenly everybody began to backtrack. And Paula Cher actually did a great visual around that time as well as blogging became much more popular and people were so interested in taking people down with a blog post about the sort of cycle mm. where you have all this mutual hate. And mm. then as soon as somebody gets involved, there's a pylon. Mm. And as soon as the person being piled on pokes their head through hmm. the pile, hmm. everybody sort of hmm. retreats. Hmm. I wonder why that is. I wonder why people don't double down on it. I mean, now I think more politicians tend to, like Matt Goetz and Marjorie Taylor Greene, they sort of are are fueled by the the responses. Yeah, I I think the large crux of it comes from the fact that, like, the internet as it currently exists now, social media as it currently exists now, is a largely dehumanizing space. And it's mm. very easy to say something absolutely horrendous to a, a thing you don't see as human. If you think that you're talking to a grainy profile picture, it's easy to call them the worst thing possible. 
if you don't think that that grainy profile picture is ever going to respond, that amps it up even more. The dehumanization kind of happens on both sides, right? As I just talked about the word troll. On the one hand, the dehumanization is coming from the person writing the comment. They are not understanding that they're sending this to a thinking, feeling human being. And then complicatedly, when we're on the receiving end of it, we forget, and this is the more complicated part, we forget that that's a thinking, feeling, breathing human being who's sending that too. And that's where it gets really, really murky. We're in a dehumanization crisis right now where the main public square where we communicate with each other is devoid of ways to see each other as human beings. And instead, I worry more, and, and this has a lot to do with pylons, but targets on which we can score points and yeah. advance our own position in the human stock exchange, the constantly fluctuating human stock exchange of social media. You detail how some people believe that if you can't change somebody's mind, there's no point in talking to them. Mm -hmm. And you say this is because for a lot of people, a conversation is a gamified debate. Mm -hmm. um, how do we break that cycle? How do we begin to change yeah. people's minds when people's minds don't want to be changed? Well, I think another thing that social media has trained us to need is, is immediate gratification. We think that when we yell at someone and demand an apology that they should change, right? We think that the crueler we are to someone, the better they'll be. You know, we think that tweeting do better <laughs> will in fact bring about that better behavior that we crave. So however we can practice patience is I think the way forward because change, as I found, change takes so much time, and it can't even be captured in a long-form conversational podcast. It has to happen privately, oftentimes, in kind of messy stops and starts, and it's not clean uh, as as every TV and <laughs> TV series and and movie and limited series wants to make us think. And I think we're wrestling with the very legitimate question. Um, and a question that dogs me quite often is, what's the point of this? What If you can't change someone's mind, what's the point of even having it? And what I feel that we are suffering from is thinking that if you cannot immediately see the point of something, then there is none, right? If you mm. cannot immediately see the change in someone, then why even try to change them? Well, of course we should try, right? Because, like, I've evolved because of people who were kind enough when I was coming of age to be like, oh, you can't say that. Oh, that's not funny. Oh, that hurts me. Because when you joke about that, that's actually a joke about me. All of these things, I was blessed to do and learn offline. There is no record of what I have said and done and so many of the people in my generation. We were the last generation to not have Facebook in high school. And thank God for that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, yep. it's just not So when I think it's like, what's the point of having these conversations when pe some people just can't change? I both think of how I've seen change happen slowly over time with my guests when I follow up with them, but then I put myself in that position, right? And it's like, well, I don't change immediately. When I'm told I'm doing something wrong, I'm so defensive at first, and I'm ashamed that 
maybe someone is right. Maybe they're right that I'm doing something wrong and shame makes you do wild things where you suddenly retreat and you're like, do it harder than you did it before. And then you realize like, oh, this is not good. And everything I just described happens in the course of at the speediest months, but realistically years and sometimes decades. And I think we need to give more room and space for people to grow and the grace to know that the growth is happening even if we don't see it. You end your book with this quote someone once shared with you. Mm -hmm. To do a project like this, you must have a lot of love in your life. Mm. So two questions. Who told you that and Mm. why do you feel that way? Um, I was doing an event in the summer of 2020 and a moderator of the talk back after my talk, they told me that. And it clarified, you know, something I've long said is um, I'm so privileged to be able to do this project. I really love having these conversations. Not everyone is this lucky. And, and in fact, many of my closest friends, uh, especially my closest friends who are women and people of color and black women especially, like don't have the energy necessarily to be like, oh, I, yep, I want to talk to my worst detractors because that is, in fact, how <laughs> online hate breaks down and they are the people who are most targeted by online hate. So it's a privilege that I have to be able to be like, this is something I want to do. And I had to release myself when I started moderating conversations um, between strangers who got into it with each other online on the podcast. And so many of my (laughs) friends who were women of color, queer women, didn't want to do this. Like, they were like, we don't want to go anywhere near this thing. You realize it's a privilege. And so I think that's one part of it. But in terms of the love, I have this, like, really profound system of support from my husband, Todd. He is my home base, right? Like, I can know that I can record what could be a truly challenging conversation with someone who has said something so vicious to me and know that I'm returning to my home base of Todd. And I think that affords me the ability to make this project and to move towards conflict and you know, I, of course, I have a lot of love in my life and I have a lot of love from my dad, but I dedicate my book to my mom because, you know, she's a therapist and she, for all of my life, she really encouraged me to always see conflict, whether it was our conflict that we had with each other, the natural like mother-son fights that happen as like oh, this could be a really cool launching point to understand what we ju- we just fought about. And so she always invited me to look at conflict head on. And her support and her teaching me that is, I think, what allowed me to do this. Dylan, the last thing I want to ask you about is a brand new gig you have. Yeah. You recently joined the writing staff of the television show Ted Lasso. Yeah. What has that been like for you? Um, It's been amazing. I mean, um, my work on it, on the writing side, is, I think, effectively wrapped as of this recording. I I always want to say there was an amazing, talented staff of writers who helped create this show before I came on. So I was simply lucky to come on board to this thing. 
but that I was invited to join what I've always thought of as this truly incredible show has has been an honor and an honor to experience and practice a new art form. Well, I can't wait to see what you've done with this TV show and can't Mm. wait to watch season three. Well, I can't wait. Dylan Marin, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Dylan Marin's book is Conversations with People Who Hate Me, 12 Things I Learned from Talking to Internet Strangers. And you could read more about all of his amazing work at dylanmarin.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. Interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.